We are in the book of Ephesians today. That's the letter we're looking at, continuing to look at this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, it'll be page 977. If you want to turn there and and follow along, that will be Ephesians chapter 4. We've been looking at these letters from Paul, and, and most of the letters, we've been looking at them chronologically. So those first ones, the, the letter to the Galatians, the, the letters to the Thessalonians, the letters to the Corinthians, um, and, and the letter to the Romans were all written uh, while Paul was on his different missionary journeys that we looked at in the book of Acts. But these letters, starting here in Ephesians, as I mentioned last week, these letters are, are a bit different. Paul has been arrested. He returned after those, those three different missionary journeys. Paul returned to Jerusalem. He was arrested. He was imprisoned and held there in Jerusalem and in Caesarea for a while, for a, several years, before he was sent then ultimately uh, under chain to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he again, for a couple of years, is under house arrest. Uh, he's probably physically chained to a guard there in Rome, but is able to have some guests, have people come in. And so it's during that time that he writes his prison letters that we see, or the first batch of prison letters. He probably writes uh, his, his later uh, letters to Timothy and Titus, or at least one of those, uh, during a, another stay in prison. But this first time that he's imprisoned in Rome, in Rome, he writes these letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, probably Philippians as well, during those two years. And so these have a little different look, a little different flavor than some of those first letters that we wrote. Now he knows he's imprisoned. He does not know if he's going to get out of prison. He does not know if he will escape here with his life from this prison time. And so he's writing letters to the churches specifically so that they can pass them around, so that it can share these letters with others. And so these letters have a different look. They have a different flavor to them. They don't have the greetings in them that some of the earlier letters did where he was sending greetings to those churches. He knows that these letters are going to be on, on a circuit. They're going to be traveling around to other churches. And so they're a little more generic in their openings and closings. But don't, don't mistake that for a lack of love for the people of Ephesus. Paul loved the people of Ephesus. He loved the Ephesian church. Remember, he spent three years there. He, he, he was so, Paul was so beloved by the Ephesian church too that even as he finished that last journey and he, he wanted to go and he wanted to visit with the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, he couldn't even go all the way into Ephesus because he knew it would just be too much, too big of a deal for him to show up there. Too many people that he had to visit with. And so he asked the elders to come out to Miletus so that he might be able to visit with them and to share with them. He loved, he loved the church in Ephesus. And last week we talked about this, this first part of the book. We, 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 I reminded you of some of the things that happened in Acts chapter 19 when Paul was there in Ephesus. That, that he, he had the, son, the, the, the sons of Sceva story about the, the demon and, the, and not recognizing their name and, and, and fighting with those, those men. The, the believers who, who had a giant bonfire because of their recommitment to God. Of, of Demetrius and, and the other silversmiths who, who led a revolt against Paul because he was proclaiming that there's only one God and they were losing business 
because they weren't able to create idols. I told you, I reminded you during that, there was a riot in the amphitheater and they shouted, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And finally, finally, for two hours, they shared, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And finally, they were settled down because someone said, no one is ever going to forget Artemis. No one, nothing can fade her glory. And yet you and I both know that her glory has been faded. Her magnificent temple that was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world is now destroyed. And yet the church, the church that Paul was building in Ephesus, that he continues to build through this letter, continues to stand and point to the glory of God. In this first part of the letter, these first three chapters that we looked at last week, Paul has, has some specific things that he wants to do. He wants to share the gospel in this first part of the letter. And so Paul, in, in the very first part, he reminds them of who God is. Remember, the, these believers in Ephesus, they're standing in the shadow of this 450-foot-long temple to Artemis. They're there. The, 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 the economy, the, the riot with Demetrius, reminds them that the economy is built on idol worship, or a large part of the economy in Ephesus is built on idol worship. There's all kinds of people that worship all kinds of gods right here in Ephesus. And so as Paul writes this letter, as he remembers his three years there, as he remembers what the culture is like in the city of Ephesus, he writes this letter and he begins by reminding them who God is. He starts right away in chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In him, in him, in him, Paul says over and over reminding us of God. In chapter 2, he reminds us of us. He reminds us of who we are. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and in sin. We were children of wrath. I told you last week, we, we talk about sin a lot. We, we uh, outside of God and his mercy to us, we are dead, we are depraved, we are sinners, we are selfish, and we like it. We like our sin. We are lost and we are children of wrath. And Paul reminds us of that every time he writes a letter. He reminds us that we were once in darkness. We were lost. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. But then he continues on in chapter 3. And he says, this is whom you are now. This is whom God has made you that he has made you in chapter 3 to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You are changed now, he says. You once were lost. You once were dead. You once were children of wrath. But now you've been changed. And so then, after he reminds us of the gospel, we want to jump into these next few verses, these next few chapters, 4, 5, and 6. Paul makes a change. There's the, the first three chapters, one, two, and three. This first part of the letter, it, it reminds us of those things. It reminds us of God. It reminds us of who we were. It reminds us of, of how we've been changed because of the gospel. And now, in four, five, and six, as he moves, as he pivots in this letter, in fact, in fact you can see right away in, in verse one of chapter four, he makes a pivot. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you now to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
This is who you have been. This is who you this is who God is. This is who you have been. This is who you are now. And so he pivots and says, now that all of those things are true, now that the gospel is true, now this is how you're to walk. This is what's to change because of those things. This is what should be true. Now you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Yes, you've been made known to to know the love of Christ and to be filled with the fullness of God. So what does that look like now? And so Paul tells us, I think, in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. He really gives us three things, I think, that he wants us to experience in the church that he breaks out in these chapters. He wants us us to know and experience unity. That's one. Number two, he wants us to know and experience transformation. And number three, he wants us to know and experience submission for Christ's sake. Submission amongst ourselves for Christ's sake. So let's look at those things together. Unity we see right here in chapter four. If you're right there in chapter four, the beginning of chapter four, Paul reminds us First, as he talks about unity, he reminds us first about the completeness and the unity that we find in God. So look at it right here. Chapter, one, or chapter 4, uh, beginning in that, that verse 1, uh, I, I, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you, we want you to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4. Remember, he's reminding us of the unity of God. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He says, our God is one God. He's one body. He's one spirit. He's one hope. He's one Lord. And the shadow of the temple of Artemis, in a city where the economy is built on the creation of idols, physical pieces that they worship, Paul's reminding them there is one God. It is not an idol that's created by human hands. It is not found in a temple that's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. There's one God. There's one God, and our God is the one true God. And it's because we have one true God that we want to grow in our unity together. Unity is is, is a reoccurring theme in Paul's writings. We've talked about it already before as we've walked through some of these other letters, particularly in the book of Romans where he was trying to join the Gentile and the Roman church who had been separated because of, the, because of Claudius kicking out the Jews and then he was trying to bring those two, two groups back together and he was preaching unity in the book of Rome, in the book of Romans. He wants, he wants the church to be united. He wants unity among believers. He wants unity in the church. Gentiles and Jews have no difference in the body of Christ. He wants unity among believers. But, even right here in Ephesians, while Paul wants unity among the church, he wants us all to be examples of the one true God, that there's unity in God and so there should be unity in his church. While he wants us to be unified, he doesn't necessarily say we all have to be identical. In fact, as you continue on, right there in verse 7, 
there, there's verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all, through all, in all. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That there might be different ways in which in unity we can be different and serve in different ways. He goes on, if you skip down to to verse 11, he goes on to say he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to measure the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed about to and fro by the waves. He says, there's lots of different gifts. There's lots of different skills. There's lots of different talents. There's lots of different jobs and roles and callings. Some have been called to be apostles. Some have been called and strengthened to be prophets. Some have been called to be evangelists and shepherds and teachers We're all called in different ways. We've been given a different measure of grace for different callings and different skills. And we're to use all of those different callings and different skills to build together the body of Christ. That doesn't sound new to you, does it? If you remember... These are the same kinds of things that Paul has already talked about in some of his other letters. You'll you'll remember this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, talking about building together the body. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that that would not make it any less a part of the body. But if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Because as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one Body. He goes on to say, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the great honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that it lacked, that there would be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul wants us as a church to have unity. We may look different. We may think different. We may act differently. We have different gifts and skills and callings and time and ability, but God has called us to be joined together. We are to tell the truth about God. He is one God, and we are to be one body. Paul reminds us of that over and over, and he reminds us of it in Ephesians chapter 4. He wants us to know about unity, but he also wants us to know about transformation. If you understand the gospel, 
you understand transformation. Paul reminds believers that they are different now than they were before. You once were children of wrath, but now you're children of light. He reminds us to put away the old self. Look at it in chapter 4. He's in chapter 4 still in, in verse 17. He says, Now this I say, testify to the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. They were darkened in their understanding. They were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They're callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice of every kind of impurity. Verse 20, chapter 4. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Then he says in verse 21, he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. That's an interesting aside, especially if you remember the story in Acts chapter 19. Do you remember what happened when, when Paul first came back? to, to if he, Remember, he, on his second journey, he stopped in, in Ephesus just for a really brief moment before he went to Jerusalem. And, and, and Priscilla and Aquila were there, and, and, and he, he headed back to Jerusalem. And when he got back to Jerusalem, he, he did his, finished his business there, and he raced back out to Ephesus, if you remember. Missionary journey number three. He went as fast as he could to get back to Ephesus. He wanted to settle there. And when he got there, there were some disciples of John. Do you remember this story? There were some disciples of John. They, they, they loved God. They were waiting for the Messiah. They, they, did, they, they loved God, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't have the whole picture. They didn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah, even though we're, we're several years into the, into the post-Jesus part of history. They didn't understand. So, so Apollo didn't understand. He didn't, when, if you remember that part, he didn't teach Jesus correctly, and Priscilla and Aquila took him aside so that he might better understand who Jesus was. And then there's this whole group of, of disciples of John that didn't know who Jesus was. And so even here, Paul's referencing, I think, that as he writes this letter back to the church in Ephesus. He says, assuming that you know about him and that you were taught about him as the truth is in Jesus. That's verse 21. But he says, verse 20, but that's not the way you learned Christ. Verse 22, this is what you know. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And it's to be renewed in the, spirits of your, in the spirit of your minds that you put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, you are different now. You're different now. You're not the same as you were before. Before you were, before you were dead in your trespasses, you were lost in sin, you were children of wrath, but now you're new. You are a new creation. And he gives us a picture here as you continue on in chapter 4 and, and into chapter 5. He gives us a picture that he does in other places too, but, but does it so well here in Ephesians. A picture of how we are to take off who we were. We are to take off the clothes of the old man and to put on the things of God, to put on the clothes of the new creation. So let's look at it together. I want you just to see these because we won't read every single word, but I want you to see these things that he tells us to put off and, and to take off and to put on. He starts in verse 25. Therefore, he says, having put away falsehood, take, take off falsehood and put on, let each one of you speak the truth. So we put off lies falsehood, and we put on truth. Verse 26, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your, we're to take off 
anger. We're to put on peace. 28, let let the thief no longer steal. Take off stealing. Take off theft. But rather, put on doing honest work with his own hands so that you have something to share. We take off stealing things. We put on honesty and sharing, generosity. We take off, in verse 29, corrupting talk. But we put on what is good for building others up according to the occasion. Verse 31, we take off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, but we put on, in verse 32, kindness to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. It continues on in chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness, all, none of those things should be named among you. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, he says. But instead, verse 4, so take off sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, and put on thanksgiving. Skip down to ch- verse 11 in chapter 5. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Take those things off, but instead put on exposing those things. Even farther down, verse 18. Do not take off, so take off, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but put on being filled with the Spirit. You see it? Take off these things that you've been wearing, these clothes that you wore when you, were, when you were dead and lost in your sin and trespasses, when you were in sin and you liked it. Take those things off. As you see them, as you become aware of them, as you notice these things that you're wearing that are displeasing to God, that are sinful, take those things off. And it's important It's important for us, I think, to understand this idea of taking off and putting on because it's not enough. It's not enough to just take off those things. It's not enough to just take off the clothes of the old man. It's not enough for us just to shake off our sin, but it has to be replaced by something new. It's not enough to just take it off. One of the things that, that we learned as we walked through, several of you were with me as we, as we walked through some biblical counseling training for a couple of years. When we, w- when we would go there, they would, they would oftentimes talk about how when you walk through biblical counseling, you do not just stop with understanding and seeing sin. It's not okay just to say, as, as we just looked at, it's not okay to just no longer steal But we see the true conversion, we see the true heart change in someone when they stop stealing and they become honest and generous. They do an honest day's work and they become generous in what they have. Same thing with these other things that we've looked at. It's it's one thing to stop corrupting talk. It's one thing about stopping gossip. But it's another thing to say now, every time that they talk, they build others up according to their needs. That we move, that we move from being dead in our trespasses to being made alive in Christ. And there's something different about us. We've taken these things off, but we've also replaced them with something new. This, this was, was sinful and, and this was children of wrath. 
But now we've put on something. We have put on the robes of righteousness, and we are made new. He says it in chapter 5. Look, he says it in verse 8. One time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We are to tell the truth about God. The things that are true about him should be true about us. And so we no longer walk in these clothes. We no longer walk in these things. These, we have taken these off and we have now put on what is true about God. And we have been transformed. Paul wants the people in Ephesus and he wants you and I to know and to understand transformation. We once were lost, but now we're found. We once were dead, but now we're alive. We once were children of wrath, but now we walk as children in the light. We've been changed. He wants us to know unity. He wants us to know transformation. But I think he also continues on in chapter 5 by wanting us to know submission for the sake of Christ. Submission for the sake of Christ. What does it look like if there are many members of one body? What does it look like if there are prophets and evangelists and teachers and shepherds and eyes and hands and feet and ears all being unified together? What does it mean if there are children that are walking in the light and they are all walking together side by side? What does that look like? So he spells it out for us here in chapter 5. He says, submission, submission is what it looks like. Submission, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He, he even mentions that right there at the end of, of chapter 5, verse 21. Not the end, but verse 21, he says that, that we're giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he, then he moves directly into it, that we are mutually, mutually in our relationships Submitting and respecting. That we, that we have this, this, this mix, this dance of, of honoring authority, but still laying down our lives. And he says, this is the way it should be in your relationships. It's the way it should be between husbands and wives. It's the way it should be between parents and children. It's the way it should be between bosses and workmen. There certainly is a hierarchy there, but... We want to honor authority, and we want to lay down our lives. We want to lay down our authority. We want, to be, we want to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why do we do that, he says? Because that's the example of Jesus. That This is the example of Christ and his church together. That we honor Jesus, who gave his life for the church. So what does, what does it look like when one body comes together walking in the light? They submit to one another for Christ's sake. They honor one another out of reverence for Christ. Chapter 6, as he closes up his letter, helps us tremendously, I think. What does it mean to walk as children of light? 
in the manner worthy of our calling. It doesn't come easy, he tells us in chapter 6. It's hard. It's hard, and we cannot do it in our own strength. And so, Paul tells us here as he closes in chapter 6, he says, God has given us a way to be helped in this hard process. He gives us the armor of God, he says, in verse, chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but rulers against authorities, against cosmic powers of the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, this is what you're to do. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness on the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, the end, with all prayer and supplication. This is what you are to do. Put on the armor of God. He says, Paul doesn't expect us he doesn't expect us to take off all of these things and to put on all of these, these new clothes. He doesn't expect us to do all that on our own. He doesn't say, now you have moved from, from, from death to life and you're on your own. Get your strength together. Do it on your own. He doesn't say that. He says, this is going to be hard. Unity is going to be hard. Submission is going to be hard. Transformation is hard. So put on the armor of God. You can only do it with the help of the truth of his word and the promises that you find there. You can only do it with the peace of the gospel that you put on your feet. You can only do it with the helmet and the surety of your salvation. You can only do it with the promise of his righteousness at work in our very being, in our breast. You can only do it with continual prayer and continual supplication. You cannot do it on your own. But God strengthens his people. God strengthens his people to do what he has called them to do. And so we turn to him and we rely on him and we rest in him. The worship team is going to come today and lead us as we close out this letter to the Ephesians. Paul wants us to know that there is hope. There is hope for those who are lost. There is hope for those who are dead in their trespasses, who are children of wrath. There is hope for those who now have come to see and come to find light, to understand the gospel and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and has the fullness of God. There is hope for those who are being changed and being transformed. There's hope for us. And so we look to and we rely on God. That's his message for the Ephesian church. That's his message, I believe, for us here at Richland as well. Please stand with me as we close together today. Faith, we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design.
in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by sight. By faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts of a holy city built by God's own hand a place where peace and justice reign we will stand as children of the promise we will fix our eyes on him our souls reward till the race is finished and the work is done we'll walk by faith and not by sight by faith the prophets saw day when the long for Messiah would appear with the power to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave by faith the church was called to go in the power of the Spirit to the lost to deliver captives and to preach good news in every corner of the earth. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on Him, our souls reward till the race is finished and the work is done. By faith and not by sight. By faith, this mountain shall be moved, and the power of the gospel shall prevail. For we know in Christ all things are possible for all who call upon his name. Stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on Him, our souls reward till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on Him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. We'll walk by faith and not by Paul closes his letter. He finishes with this. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Thank you for coming this morning.